0: The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Alex Craner, who is a former hedge fund manager, commodity trader, and founder of Craner Analytics. He's also the author of the censored book, The Killing of William Browder. We will be getting his thoughts on what's happening in the world, the economy, war, and why he believes it's the banking cartel that is driving the COVID-1984 agenda. Dobrodošli, gospodin Craner. Thank you very much for having me, and greetings to your listeners and viewers. Now, before I get to my first question, let me just remind listeners to please subscribe to our free email list and both our mainstream and alternative social media channels. It's imperative that you sign up for the email list and the alternative channels, my favorite being Telegram, because the purge is on. They're terminating Twitter, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and Facebook accounts from all of us dissident thinkers right now. This happened just this week to G. Edward Griffin and Robert Kennedy Jr., Also, please leave us a podcast review on Apple, where we're getting some disgruntled reviews based on ideological biases that I believe don't come from a fair and objective perspective. Perhaps some are even from the government's 77th brigade. And leave us a tip via PayPal, crypto, or become a supporter on Patreon or Subscribestar. Now, Alex, before we get at the underbelly of Project COVID 1984, as I call it, I just wanted to get your take and assessment on the general health status of the global economy perhaps right up to uh, before the declared pandemic in March, as well as how bad you see the economic situation today right now. And then we can look at your thesis on how it's the banking cartel behind COVID-1984, which is what I and numerous other of my expert guests on geopolitics and empire have been saying since the very beginning. Uh,
1: So uh, to talk about the uh, economic situation, it's... um... It's a mess to be sure, uh, but the mess is not there because necessarily uh, there's anything wrong, wrong with the economy. The mess is uh, of, the, of the financiers making. So uh, just to clarify this, um, we, have, we have a very fraudulent monetary system that's based on fractional reserve banking and uh, fiat currency that's issued into circulation as debt. Uh, this creates incentive to load up the economy with more and more debt as uh, the economy expands, and uh, this produces periodic uh, financial crises. So when I say that the economy itself could be okay, what I mean by that is that the um, you know uh, farmers still uh, produce food, uh, bakers still bake bread, uh, car mechanics still are capable of repairing cars, taxi drivers still drive taxis, oil is still flowing and so forth. So the, um, the economy itself, the process which provides livelihood for the populations of societies worldwide, they're all fine uh, what comes to a grinding halt is that the means of exchange, the money, uh, becomes scarce, and then you know people who need bread can't pay the baker. Uh, if baker can't sell the bread, he can't uh, pay back his uh, creditors, and then maybe he goes bankrupt, and then people who need bread can't buy bread anymore. The bank, the baker's out of out of business. Uh, he's uh, now on the government dole. And so the whole thing grinds to a halt, not because the economy cannot run, but because the uh, means of exchange. The currency um, is a fraudulent kind that produces frequent boom and bust cycles. And these bust cycles actually cause real pain to ordinary people. And so we are now at, now at that stage. But I think that the regime has changed since, uh, since March. Namely, um, for years now, we've been expecting an imminent banking crisis because uh, companies like Societe Generale and Deutsche Bank and UBS and so forth uh, have been in a terrible shape. Um, the the failure of one of these banks, particularly, probably Deutsche Bank, has been anticipated. Um, in early March of this year, uh, some, you could call it smart money even, have uh, have drawn down their revolving credit lines. We're talking about groups like BlackRock and Carlyle, uh, Boeing, and so forth, because they expected uh, an imminent banking crisis. It, did, it didn't happen because we had the CARES Act, we had uh, a very sharp, Change uh, in the financial regime, I believe, like practically a practically a financial coup, where governments and central banks uh, started printing money uh, practically to infinity. So they actually they actually said we're going for QE infinity. Uh, in Mario Draghi's terms, whatever it takes. And I think they started backstopping uh, the losses that were accumulated in the system in the form of bad debts. These bad debts uh, risked the future of the banks. Uh, If the banks went down, they would pull the credit lines. Uh, Many, many companies would go out of business and so forth. So I think that to avoid the pain and to avoid losing control of of the system, they decided to simply go ahead and start printing money as much as it was needed and uh, the governments uh, increased sharply their deficit spending. In the United States, um, the M2 and M3 money supplies jumped sharply to plus 23% annualized. Uh, Not to bore your listeners with statistics too much, but let's say that in the 1970s when we had high inflation in US dollar, the uh, M2 money supply was never growing faster than 14% per annum. Now we're already at plus 23% per annum. What happens effectively is that instead of these large corporations and large banks failing, the situation is turned around. They're kept in business by, by printed up money, by monetized debt and this instead generates inflation. And inflation means that your money and my money and pensioners' money and savers' money uh, gradually starts to lose purchasing power, which means that it is us who take the hit rather than the bankers and the big corporates. And so this is where we're at now. I think that the inflationary cycle uh, will begin. I think there are already signs that it is beginning how bad it will be we don't know and i think it's difficult to predict maybe it's impossible to predict how long it will last it's impossible to predict and how painful it will be for uh, for ordinary people only time will tell but it's a big mess and it's going to be very painful and uh, i think that it'll be a challenge to get to the next uh, five to ten years for most people
0: And just one more point on what you talked about uh, of this banking crisis before we move to COVID. You you mentioned Deutsche Bank, which I think is obvious. We have like the Spanish uh, Bancomer, BBVA. It has its largest portion of debt uh, or loans out to Turkey, which can default uh, to Bancomer and then create a chain reaction. But uh, you gave an excellent interview recently to the excellent show uh, Renegade Inc. And you were, people were, you were discussing, you know, these bank bailouts, bank collapses, as well as uh, bank bail-ins, we saw that happen in in Cyprus a decade ago, where the banks just went into our savings accounts and skimmed uh, from us. You see, this as, you see this as a, a potential threat and danger.
1: Well, I was actually expecting this very scenario until until relatively le- re- recently. You know, like I. I remember that already in the um, uh, in, uh, c- close in the aftermath of the 2009 financial crisis, I remember that the uh, the legal framework was being changed to prepare the system for bail-ins. So uh, uh, there was this guy Dizelblum in the in the ECB who was who was uh, running this this project and the, the news that were coming out and the statements. It was, it was obvious that they were pre- pre- um, preparing to bail in the depositors, which means that maybe if you had money in the bank and the bank failed, that they would simply help yourself to your assets and in exchange you would get uh, stock shares of the bank. That was the idea. And obviously the bank would be probably pretty worthless by then. So, you know, uh, you'd, be, you'd be basically uh, robbed. But so yeah, uh, going back, I fully expected this scenario to take place uh, until until recently, and but with the with the with the COVID nineteen um, uh, or as you call it COVID nineteen eighty four uh, regime change, which which happened, uh, I think not in a fully transparent way. I think that as the dust settles, we're going to know more. But it is obvious that something has dramatically changed. I think that the that the uh, people in power have had a change of heart because maybe the uh, the the loss-absorbing capacity of uh, of the bank equity of the of the uh, and and, and of, end of the depositors possibly isn't sufficient to float up the system, and uh, maybe for that reason. Uh, they decided that the only way to float up the system is just to simply uh, crank up the printing presses and to print up what was necessary. So, uh, long story short, I don't think we're going to see balins. Uh I could prove wrong, but at this point, I think since they're not telling us, uh, we're, we're obliged to speculate. And uh, if you ask me this, uh, one year ago, I would have told you, yeah, we're going to get bailed in, you know, banks are going to fail and uh, we're going to end up uh, stock, stock owners of, of uh, failed big banks. Now, I think that's not going to happen. What's going to happen instead is that you're going to see your savings and your pensions uh, pro- progressively um, eroded in terms of purchasing power and they're going, to, they're going to float up the system in this way. What's important for them uh, is, is not the economy they have uh, created and um, developed a system of governance. And this system of governance is, is, uh, depends on these uh, institutions that they've established, uh, namely the banking franchise, the whole hierarchy of banks from top to bottom, from, the, from your retail banks all the way up until uh, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of International Settlements. They have a chain of command that uh, probably has, no, not probably, certainly has very strong influence in the um, military intelligence agencies, uh, police courts, uh, uh, academia, uh, media, and so forth. And so uh, I think it is imperative for them not to lose control over this system of governance. So they will destroy the economy to save this system. And if that means that every last one of us is going to uh, end up uh, robbed of our savings and of our property, then so be it. That's, you know, uh, that's their priority. Our priorities are obviously different. And then we go back to what Lord Acton said 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, is that there's going to be a conflict between the people and the bankers And uh, I think that we've come to uh, facing that day.
0: Yeah. So let's get into that. Uh, And I think uh, COVID-1984 is a manifestation uh, of what you just said. You know, it's this insane uh, dystopian science fiction project. Uh, I recognized it at the start in March. It was so obvious. Um, And in August, you wrote on your blog, The Naked Hedgie, quote, the situation became surreal how can seemingly intelligent learned people remain so stubbornly attached to a narrative that's obviously flawed? Has everyone worldwide gone insane? If it is not science and logic that's informing the public health measures, then what is it?" Uh, End quote. And then you go into how the president of Belarus, Lukashenko revealed how the world bank and IMF were bribing countries to lock down and quarantine. In fact, for where I currently am in Mexico, I discovered the precise official documents, which demonstrate how and why my darn state governor is conducting lockdowns. Our city here is considered a Rockefeller resilient city. And our governor is receiving funds from the Rockefeller Foundation and these other groups such as the World Bank. And in their documents, they discuss setting up a technocracy. Their own documents discuss a Tom Cruise minority report, pre-crime system, smart surveillance grid, where uh, everything is 100% digital, including the elimination of cash. So I think this is utter madness uh, and tyranny. And so you've said that in your article, which is fantastic that quote, there can be little doubt that the enemy is the international banking cartel. Uh, And so you're saying they're behind this COVID-1984. So can you explain this a bit more?
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, I have observed because over the last 20 years, you know, I've lived Thirty years. I've lived in a number of different countries. I've lived in uh, Venezuela. I've lived in the United States, UK, uh, Croatia, um, in Monaco. So you know, like I, I, have been, I've been able to follow the media in the British media, the American media, the Spanish media, the uh, Croatian ones, Italian ones, and one thing that has become obvious. Very early into this, I, I also I also had no doubt whatsoever from the very beginning of the pandemic that it was uh, there was something very wrong with it, and uh, I I remember when the lockdown started, I told my parents, this is not going away. They crossed the Rubicon; they cannot retreat. So they're going to push this all the way, and the agenda is not public health; it's something completely different. And I think that what are we now? Uh, seven, eight months into this pandemic. Well, uh, first of all, we've never seen a pandemic that lasts uh, seven, eight months, right? These uh, coronaviruses, they're essentially common cold viruses. They come into a population and uh, then they dissipate and they go away. And then the next, the next thing comes. it's been like that forever. This one came in a second wave. Uh, in science, There is no foundation for a second wave hypothesis. They just pulled this and and contrived it out of whole cloth. Um, So we have now the second wave conjured up by PCR testing uh, to keep the fear going and to persuade everybody to wear masks. Um, Now, the thing that I found extremely unlikely is that governments the world over would, by some strange magic, end up implementing virtually identical public health policies that makes absolutely that make absolutely no sense. That are staggeringly incoherent. That have goalposts that kept that keep being moved. You know, like now you don't need to wear masks. Masks are useless No Now ma- masks are extremely important, and you have to wear them. Uh, anyway, you know, like not to go through all the inconsistencies, nonsense, uh, incoherence, and lies that we've been exposed to every day because it's like a, it's like a massive pileup of, of 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 weird and stupid stuff. But something has got to be the binding glue that keeps it all together. You know, like somebody has to be capable of dictating these measures to all the governments across the board. Otherwise, you could expect that some governments, as as happened in Sweden and Belarus and and, a few few places, uh, I had to rethink about what happened in Belarus. So, that was in June. Belarus, President of Belarus, Lukashenko, Publicly announced that IMF offered Belarus a 940 million dollar loan, but that the IMF negotiators conditioned that loan on uh, Belarus imposing um, lockdowns and curfews and uh, mask wearing and all this, and that they asked Belarus health officials to provide feedback to the World Health Organization about uh, implementing all, of all these measures and the experience they were having with them. And uh, President Lukashenko said, no. I thought at the time, how strange that IMF would condition such a large loan with measures that would make it far more difficult for the country to repay the loan. Like, here's the money, but we want you to destroy your economy. It doesn't make any sense, does it? But, okay. uh, Two months later, it hit me finally. And I realized, oh my God, what happened is that all the other governments got the loans, accepted the conditionalities, but obviously forgot to tell their constituents and their subjects, in case of uh, kingdoms. And so I think what happened is that you know, as as the world economy um, went into a tailspin, went into a recession, uh, many many governments found themselves underfunded. Uh, Their tax receipts are not going to be sufficient to cover the the budgets. They're going to need loans. So who are they going to turn to? They're going to turn to the World Bank. They're going to turn to uh, IMF. They're going to turn to perhaps uh, large capital markets. Who knows? Uh, The central banks. Where? They're going to be asked to implement these conditionalities. And these conditionalities are not about public health. They are about obedience training for the next stage, which is a totalitarian world regime. I think um, I think this you know if, if we were talking about this one year ago or even six months ago, many people would think like okay these, these guys are uh, like tinfoil hat, Flat Earth conspiracy theories theorists. But I think that by now it's become increasingly clear, that the official narrative makes no sense. So obviously there's a different agenda afoot. Um, In interpreting this agenda, opinions will diverge, but obviously something is profoundly wrong. And so we find ourselves uh, at a juncture where we have to kind of look around ourselves and decide what do we think about this? We can obviously not trust the uh, mainstream media. Uh, The governing structures are not being transparent and uh, forthright with us. And so, obviously, we are in the conspiracy uh, theory domain where we have to kind of uh, simply connect the dots to interpret what the hell is
0: going on. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, if you can't... Rec- I mean, I still have people who call me conspiracy theorist and it's just like... Are you serious like we've got the documents like you have to be brain dead to not see what's uh going on and j- just if, if you could just go the next step you mentioned this totalitarian world regime you know robert f kennedy jr a, cre- a, a credible person recently said that in the berlin protest a month or two ago that what we're facing is a global tyranny the likes of which humanity has never seen in, in history we've got the archbishop uh Vigano, uh, sending out a petition signed by intellectuals and, and scientists saying that they're laying the groundwork for a totalitarian world uh government and so maybe if you could give a like an insight or to you know where they might be taking this i think one of the one of the key aspects is this digital payments system cashless society we see uh all of the central banks now are coming out with these central bank digital currencies uh the u.s is going to in january Uh, 2021 unleash this digital dollar where people will just have their, you know, dollar savings bank accounts uh, directly with the Fed on their smartphone. Expert Richard Werner has stated that the express goal of the central banks is basically to eliminate all of the other banks, you know, retail, commercial. So you're just going to have your account with the central bank. There will be no cash. It'll be a cashless system. Uh, Bloomberg just reported yesterday that the Italian prime minister has started a program to get rid of cash. And so how do you see this, this aspect or as well as what are some of their other th- things that they're going with with this totalitarian system?
1: No, I think this is perhaps the most important aspect of the whole agenda. Uh, because by controlling, the, by controlling the money, by having complete control of the money and uh, uh, how we spend and they have complete control over each and every one of us. Uh, I think it's you know like you don't have to go far with your imagination to see where that that could go, but you know they can uh, if if the only if the only way for you to attain uh, means of survival, means of your livelihood, you know like your groceries, uh, rent payment, and so on is this digital cash that only exists. In, a, in an account with your central bank, then they know everything about you. They know how much money you spend, when, where, on what. And uh, they can condition anything uh, to allow you access to that cash. So, you know, if, you, if you're not compliant, if you're not up to date with your vaccinations, they can block your account. If you want to buy something, you'll just get a non-approved transaction. Uh, you have to uh, be compliant with your uh, with your vaccine schedule um, and and so forth. You know, whatever they think up, whatever they think up becomes doable. However, uh, people will uh, reject this. People. Have shown great resilience and great creativity through history, and they easily uh, come up with alternative solutions. They come up with uh, regional currencies, with uh, local currencies, uh, with barter systems, with you know we could use we could use things like Bitcoin, uh, like time banks. Uh, there are many many ways for us to exchange uh services and goods that we can provide to a community for in in exchange for those that we need to source from the community um to keep us from doing that to oblige us to use their uh digital currency they have to have full control over us so uh some form of uh, really draconian tyranny is necessary that'll say uh you may not use gold coins, you may not use Bitcoin, you may not use uh, packs of cigarettes. You know, in some, there have been examples like in Romania in the 1970s, 1980s, I forget which one, where uh, people used uh, packs of cigarettes as currency. Um, you know, the, the, there's many ways to arrange uh, an economy. In order for them to force us into a single global central bank and the digital money that this central bank would issue for us to use as currency, uh, there has to be a very heavy handed police state. And I think that how heavy handed it will have to be would probably shock anybody, you know, like no wiggle room, zero wiggle room. So, scenarios like George Orwell's 1984 might even be a little bit fluffy and soft on the edges compared to what they need to do here. And uh, as I said, you know, they crossed the Rubicon, they cannot retreat. This is it. This is that battle, you know. This is that battle that we've been watching in movies and reading in storybooks all our lives, you know, uh what's it called? Fellowship of the Ring, right? Tolkien's uh uh Master of the rings, right? Forget. Lord of the rings. Yeah. Uh, where there's this epic clash between good and evil. And I think there's no, there's no doubt which side is good and which side is evil. And I think that, uh, even if we disagree about the interpretation of what this conspiracy is, because you know, like at this point, I don't even defend against the, the, the label conspiracy theories obviously we're dealing with a conspiracy and obviously we're obliged to theorize about it because they're not telling us exactly here's what we have in store for you so you have to theorize right so yeah i'm 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 a conspiracy theorist i i you know the only way i wouldn't be is if i if i closed my eyes and and my ears and just didn't pay attention to anything whatsoever and so I think that even if we, could, if we could diverge very widely in how we interpret where this is going, uh, I think that probably 99.99% of us want the same things, and only a very, very small fraction of us, and I don't even know if it's us, us I, these people are really different, uh, are pushing for this other scenario. I think it's a very, very small uh, group of people. I doubt that even Bill Gates is on board with this. I, you know, like um, he would be, he would be one of the top villains in this in this stack. But I wonder if he hadn't been, he hasn't been had in the sense that he has to do what he's told or else. You know what I mean? And so, uh, people who are driving this show are higher up and the show they're driving is profoundly ugly. And it's, uh, it's really a clash between the, the the sacred and divine God's creation versus uh, some kind of a satanic Luciferian creation, which uh, which uh, wishes to destroy God's creation. It's really, we're really at that level. And so I think we have no choice at this point.
0: Yeah, I, I would uh, agree with you. Um... I've never felt like this in my life um i've I've known about this scenario coming for the last you know twenty thirty years. I've been expecting it at some future date and in my being as you say like in my in my bones, I know that as you say, this is it, you know and other I've heard other people high level intellectuals and experts all agreeing with yourself and myself that. This is the big one, you know, and yeah, yeah, this is the big one. And one other aspect that you talk about in your article is the real danger of global war as a diversion from the bankers' plans. And you know, I, I agree with you, and historically, that has been uh, the case. You know, we saw World War One and what happened during that phase. You know, they there was the World War, the 1918 pandemic. And the attempt to create the, you know, the League of Nations, this global government structure, we saw the similar case with World War Two, right, global wars, you know, these global institutions. And um, so now we have this, you know, economic collapse pandemic. And so you write in your article, quote, as the Rockefeller Foundation document reveals. They have anticipated our pushback and have surely planned diversions to misdirect our grievances toward the visible enablers of their top-down authoritarian rule. One of the greatest means of diversion are wars. We must therefore guard against believing that our enemies are the Russians, the Chinese, or whomever the logic of divide and rule would pit us against, end quote. So we see the narrative building up for war with China, Iran, and Russia across all uh, the global media and we see military maneuvers you know taking place to back up the the media propaganda so you know what's your take on the prospect of global war
1: well i think uh, just like in the build up to world war 1 you know you have a you have a network of uh, actors and agents who are working over time to try to spark uh military crisis in in multiple uh, war theaters and so there isn't a shortage of those you know the the the, the instigator of all this and I'm going to say it out, outright because it's important to understand this people might not grasp this quite but it's if you if you look into it deeply uh, the conclusion is inevitable that we are dealing with vestiges of the British Empire. The overarching priority of the British Empire is to rule the Eurasian lands, right? Because that's where uh, the bulk of world population is, this is where the bulk of the trade routes go, this is the where bulk of the global GDP is and, uh, and it's also the, the, the strategic stronghold in the world. So, uh, ruling this humongous landmass is not possible by, by military conquest. So, uh, the alternative is to, to simply uh, have it divided uh, in client states and client regimes that are loyal to you and then to pit them against one another so that they are perpetually at war against each other, and you simply kind of weigh from one to the other. You feign alliance with one, but you're also helping the other. And this has been the scenario and the recipe that the British Empire has used for, uh, what, the last 300 years? You know, so it's been always pitting uh, Russia against Turkey, still today, Turkey against Syria, Uh, Today, we have also Saudi Arabia against uh, Iran, um, uh, India-Pakistan, India-China, China-Japan, Russia-Japan, Russia-Scandinavian countries, Russia-Poland, Russia-Ukraine, you know, like so there's like, and now we have, they succeeded in triggering a military conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan which, you know, if, if they do things right, hopefully, from I mean, when I say hopefully, I mean from their, their point of view, the thing escalates into something bigger, and then they can, uh, they can get their World War III scenario going. Uh, in 100 years ago, uh, I think that the statesmen around the world And the the governing structures were not as well-informed and were not as sophisticated as they are today. Uh, What I observe today is that it is clear that at least certain governments like the Russian government, uh, Iranians, the Chinese, the the, the Belarus, uh, fully well understand this game and how it is played. I also believe that the Trump administration, or at least the segment of the administration that is loyal to Donald Trump also understand the game and also understand their alliances and their uh, who the who the adversary is. But you know, this adversary has worked for um, over 100 years to um, to penetrate the governing structures, to penetrate the, the 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 how do you call it the the educational and Cultural uh, aspects of society, so you can't just come right out and say like, "Oh, the British Empire is our enemy," because people will think like you're nuts. What are you talking about? You know, there's been like decades and decades and decades of brainwashed through Hollywood movies, where you know uh, you always see certain people and certain countries as villains, and other ones as the white hats, and uh, uh, this. This is um, okay. So I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, when I wrote my book about, uh, about Bill Browder uh, and, uh, and the Magnitsky Act and anti Russian sanctions a few years ago, uh, I asked many of my friends in the United States, Americans, educated Americans, some of them with masters and PhD degrees, I asked them, uh, What do you think the US Civil War was about? And I swear, two to the one. They all said it was about the abolition of slavery, right? So the narrative that everybody has accepted is that there was this big fight about the freedom of the slaves, you know, like the Southerners were the bad guys and the Northerners were the good guys. Uh, The Northerners wanted to free the slaves, the Southerners wanted to keep them as slaves, and then they just went to war and the good guys won, the bad guys lost, and the slaves were free. It wasn't like that at all. It was a it was a massive geopolitical uh, play and the and the play was that the United States was becoming a very very powerful country in world affairs that the British Empire was very concerned that the uh, rising American power would be uh, rival to the to the British Empire and the logic of the Empire is always to seek to eliminate any rival and so uh, what the British uh, Imperial um, government decided to do is to attempt to uh, split the United States into two smaller, weaker, weaker client regimes. Again, pit them one against the other, divide and rule, and uh, in this way to uh, retain dominance all over the world and all the trade, all the the global trade routes. So um, this is what we see today, and so I think that there is great danger that they succeed in triggering some war somewhere, but I think that they're facing headwinds today because as we see already, uh, Russian Secretary, uh, Foreign Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is already holding peace talks between Azerbaijan and Armenia. So, you know, like, I think that there are these firefighting, um, firefighting uh, preparations uh, ready to uh, douse any conflict and to keep it from escalating and so we saw that uh, a few years ago attack on Iran uh, failed which was being which was being orchestrated by the British diplomacy and the British secret services uh, we saw that uh, that this this conflict now between um, Armenia and Azerbaijan didn't isn't isn't apparently going to escalate the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, hasn't escalated and so forth. and So, I'm a little bit more optimistic, but I think that we have to be on guard because it's not just them triggering a conflict. It's also that then they, by controlling the media, try to uh, trigger this campaign of demonization of the other side, you know, and it's very easy for, for people, you know, like if tomorrow turkey launches an air raid into greece it would be very easy to convince greece people that it's like okay now it's war now we fight uh and then you know like uh, turks are going to be demonized in in uh, in greece and vice versa greeks in turkey and then you know the whole thing can sp- the conflagration can be out of control but i think that we all have to guard against it because uh, this is a lengthy answer but you and I are both Croatians, and I remember a uh, war in Croatia breaking out. And the the thing that struck me about this experience is that even, even just a few days before the war broke out, uh, I think that most of us, most of us believed that there was no way. When I say most of us, I would say probably 99% of the people thought that there was no way. There was no way that the war could break out because, you know, like we were ethnically, culturally, in all ways, we were so intertwined. That you know, like the neighbor would would start shooting at a neighbor. It was it was it was simply unthinkable. But once the missiles started flying, started flying, once there were dead there were dead people, once there were uh, towns and cities destroyed, um, the psychology changed almost instantly. And so this was this was very very fascinating to observe. But all of a sudden, from one day to the next, there was no more nuanced discussion about. Yeah, the other side has a point. Yeah, maybe we need to this or that. No, now it was it was it was a fight. It was a war. And either you went to war, either you either you joined the war effort, uh, or you were suspected as a you know as a traitor. You were not patriotic. There was you know political uh, political dissidents where it was tantamount to treason. So everybody closes ranks behind the leadership, and then it's war. And then you can't reverse it anymore until everybody's completely exhausted and fatigued, and then, you know, eventually they have to sit around the table and conclude some kind of a piece. But to make the to to conclude the whole long uh, musing on this is that we have to all each and every person guard against this pitfall, because this is the
0: pitfall that they have in store for us. And indeed, what you just described is just the cold, hard fact and and truth of of history and and, and war breaking out. Um, I think just as you described for the war in, in Croatia and Serbia and Yugoslavia, it's the same situation for any world war. Uh, for the collapse of the Soviet Union, the day before, no one would have thought that that that, that could have and would have happened. Uh, yeah. I've just I've just got two more questions uh, for you. One is. How, uh, you know, if this scenario goes forward, this totalitarian global government, this cashless society, you know, what are ways that people can at least protect themselves? Um, You've said uh, in previous articles you've written for the Naked Hedgie and and, and interviews you've given um, that uh, gaining an effective hedge against the coming inflation tsunami will be difficult for the 99% of us. Uh, that nonetheless you've suggested people try to protect themselves from the great reset and economic collapse through farmland some gold silver perhaps crypto crypto um you know could could you tell us what are the few ways uh, people can prepare and do you envision a scenario where let's say they have the cashless system and you know maybe i have some ounces of silver or gold but that there will be no way for me to use that gold, for example, that no one will want to accept it, it'll be banned or something. And so even in that scenario, that gold and silver may not become useful at all. So, so what are some ways uh, you think people might be able to protect themselves if the worst comes to pass?
1: Well, I think it's very hard to imagine uh, exactly what the circumstance will be. But, you know, uh, people always organize gray and black markets. And so people will organize gray and black markets. So if you have some silver, if you have some gold, you will probably be able to uh, to use them to acquire a certain things that you need. Maybe it'll be uh, a tank of gasoline, or maybe it'll be a chicken, or whatever. Uh, but uh, gray markets, for sure, are going to exist, and black markets. It's hard to imagine that they will be able to have such a completely airtight control over all of our activities but i think that the uh, it, it, it it should be much more important for us to make sure it doesn't even come to that okay and i think that uh because okay for example you could buy a plot of farmland today and i would always advise against buying a very large one because uh, I don't know maybe a little bit over 10 years ago I bought 30 hectares in Croatia and uh, honestly you know uh, you can't use that much land that is you know like it's a it's a it's a, it's, a, it's a major job you know you have to be there you have to work it it requires capital to develop that you need you need a small plot you know no more than a hectare probably preferably a quarter or half a hectare an acre right and uh, with the resources that are available to you, with Dr. YouTube, with a lot of how to do this and that, uh, with the literature that's available for free online or on Amazon or in other bookstores, you can make creative use of that, you know, uh, things like chickens, potatoes, um, um, you know uh, simple crops, uh, you can you can do you can do a lot to uh, let's say bridge over a crisis period. Uh, when we talk about um money uh, forms like gold and silver uh i don't think there's any point in trying to hoard it because that's also something you can lose. It has to be portable right so it, ha- it shouldn't be too much for you to like stick in you know like in a small bag and run with you know if you can't run with it, you have too much <laughs> and so i think I think the way to think of it is you should have some gold coins. In case uh, you need to bridge over a few months of uh, food shortages, uh, three months, six months, uh, probably not more than a year, uh, to bribe some government officials and bureaucrats who might, uh, you know, put you in a difficult position. And if you can't bribe them, bribe them, then your life suddenly becomes extremely complicated. Uh, but other than that, I think our priority and our uh, our number one priority should be making sure that this doesn't even come to pass. And so here is where I very strongly believe that we have to all resist the temptation to um, to antagonize one another, because we all we all have different theories about what's going on, you know. They're mostly similar. But on the edges, on the margins, they're going to be different. And I notice that people can sometimes, you know, like sometimes I'll have a terrible disagreement with somebody, uh, perhaps on the subject of vaccines, but then we completely agree on some other things. And, uh, you know, I don't shrink from, from conflict, you know, like I'm not, I, I argue my case, you know, I, people don't have to agree with me, but I argue my case. And I like to hear other people's cases as well, because I don't want to be, I I don't want to be wrong, you know, so if I if there's a mistake in my thinking, I'd rather know than be stupid about it. And so what I've noticed over many, many, many such uh, conversations I've had over years, that 99% of us want the same things, we just sometimes disagree about how, how to get there. And so I think we need to all be patient with, patient with one another. I think we all have to study the problem matter as rigorously as we can. I think we need to try to isolate and retain quality information. You know, like um, to give you an example, it's it, it's one thing to say, oh, this pandemic is a fake thing nobody's sick versus saying, specifically, uh, the PCR tests are only 5% positive, so 95% of people do not have positive tests, and of the 5% who are positive, 99.8% of people have either very mild symptoms or no symptoms whatsoever. So, this is not a pandemic. So, if you can provide people very specific. Uh, correct evidence, very specific numbers, it's very difficult to argue with that. If you just give a vacuous, uh, oh, there's no such thing as this, then people can easily dismiss you. And I think that we have to, in this way, instead of antagonizing, educating, and also we have to be sure we get people in the media, people in the military, people in the, in the courts, and people in the police on our side because they all are human beings, even if they're being put on the wrong side of this equation momentarily, because they also have children, uh, they will understand that the world, the measures that are in, that they are enforcing today are going to end up shaping the world that their children will live in tomorrow. So they can't feel good about this. They can't be good about um, implementing things that... Um, Are contrary to their conscience. And so we have to act with great patience, with great perseverance. We have to understand that the struggle is long term. We we will not get what we want by making one statement, by staging one walkout, uh, one demonstration, by writing one letter to our uh, representatives in Congress or whatever. Uh, This has to be a sustained effort, and we have to patiently. bring in on our side as many people as we can, especially those
0: who are today opposed to us. All right. um, I just wanted to read one final quote and just get one final comment for you. And I think you've, you've laid it out better than than I could. Um, Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote, quote, there is but one choice to risk, to rise to the task of the age Very soon, only too soon, your country will stand in need of not just exceptional men, but of great men. Find them in your souls. Find them in your hearts. Find them in the depths of your country. End quote. You have written on your blog that, quote, we've no choice but to confront them, the super predator bankers and handful of families and individuals who control and manage the present monetary system. Today, we are armed with truth and information that past generations could not have dreamt of. Today we can make the difference and gift our children and their children a world of prosperity and liberty beyond anything that we can imagine at present. That struggle is worth every effort, end quote. So, you know, I also think of my children and every, everyone else's <coughs> children, um, uh, but often I'm kind of in dismay and, and shock at the inability of the general population to grasp what's happening, um, their disinterest and disregard and even their opposition to, to people like yourself or myself, uh, where they're mocking us or or fighting against us trying to get this information out. And and often I boil it down as well to cowardice. You know, many people are afraid to speak up, to lose their jobs, to lose face in society. Uh, I mean, we're facing total annihilation. So, you know, as, as humanity, every time in the past, uh, when they've uh, um, attemp- attempted to subjugate us, you know, humanity has has fought against it so you know what are your thoughts on speaking up uh fighting back and also maybe you know tell us why you're not afraid of, of speaking out I, I i'm not either you know is it because you the, the croatian blood in us or you know speak to the importance of of us speaking out and and this is struggle uh
1: no i don't think i i don't i don't think there's anything particularly croatian about this i think it's a, simply a human thing and i think in this respect you know, like uh, very soon it will be apparent that you and I have a lot more in common with an ordinary Serbian person because, you know, like we went to war against Serbia and, and vice versa, right? But it will very quickly become apparent that we have a lot more in common with, uh, with uh, an ordinary Serbian than we have with the <clears throat> elites that govern Croatia today, right? And who are beholden to these uh, much, much higher interests. That reside in london in brussels in new york uh, and so forth and so i think um uh, there's there's a lot more of us than them we haven't you know yeah it, it it is very normal at the beginning that there's relatively few of us who are willing to speak out because you know people have jobs so they need their incomes they have mortgages they need to feed their families it's understandable that they are Uh, They're reticent to put themselves at risk. Um, However, I think that if we don't speak out, then nobody knows that they're not alone. You know what I mean? Most of us are on the same side. So if you speak out, then I say like, hey, yeah, I see you. If uh, if a whole group of people organize themselves and speak out, then other groups will see them and realize, "Oh, we have allies." There's a lot of us, and in that way, you know, um, the th- this cowardice, which I wouldn't I wouldn't say cowardice, but I would say uh, uh, timidity, uh, hesitation, also falls away. And uh, I I recently came across a, a quote by. Confucius, uh, which I won't be able to tell you word for word exactly, but what he said was that you know like the, the frightening, terrible things we see around ourselves is like like a, like a big tree falling down. and the quote says, "When a large tree falls, it's, it falls with great noise and the destruction, but um, seeds grow with no sound. And what this means to me is that you and I talking now and people listening to this and hearing this and then expressing themselves among their friends and their own podcast in their own blogs and so forth, these are the seeds and we are those seeds. And so uh, just because these things that are coming apart are so frightening and noisy doesn't mean that the growth of hundreds of millions of seeds isn't so much more powerful than those forces of destruction that are so audible and visible. So we shouldn't be discouraged. We shouldn't be afraid. And even the people who are opposed to us ultimately, I think that they're creating a very ugly and unsustainable future for themselves. You know, Lord Rothschild, He's not going to be um, growing his own chickens and his own potatoes. He's going to depend on servants, and he's going to depend on people who are going to keep his servants in check. And those people are going to be all much, much poorer than he is, and they might want what he has. So what is he creating for himself and his family? A life of chronic paranoia and fear, That's awful, that's just awful. So anyway, you know, like uh, we must carry on uh, with a certain patience and perseverance, knowing that we are growing, we are a growing force. And I think that with time, we're gonna be a bigger and bigger force. And more and more of us are going to recognize the struggle for what it is and join the struggle. And then I think that the next challenge, because we haven't got this sorted out, is to decide what kind of a future we want for humanity. And uh, we we have complicated questions to solve, and one of them is money. You know, uh, we've we went three hundred years on a fraudulent monetary system that actually. Uh transfers wealth from the people who create it to the people who control the monetary system. And we have to invent something better because we actually create amazing abundance. It's just that because of the money, we don't have access to it. Somebody else does. And so we're gonna have to decide how we want to arrange a future society. But that's going, to, I think that's going to be a good challenge. And I think that's where the the all the information and all the knowledge you mentioned, Richard Berner, he has been instrumental in um, making sense out of this whole out of this whole monetary system. Also for me, and I think that now we have an, an understanding of the monetary system that that's that better than we've ever had. Which means that then we can uh, construct uh, a fairer, juster society where we're going to be able to live in liberty and prosperity uh, without, uh, without, being, uh, w- without the anxiety, without the fear, and uh, maybe offer our, our, our children a future that's un- unimaginably better than anything we've
0: known so far. All right, we'll leave it on that uh, positive and optimistic note. Uh, regarding uh, lord rothschild and his servants i hope he doesn't replace them with uh, you know a- ai robots <laughs> uh, so uh, i believe <laughs> i believe your main website is thenakedhedgy.com, naked uh, where people can follow your thoughts you've got a twitter uh, as well is there any other website or project that we should know about
1: uh no not in this forum i have my business website but you know um that's that's for professional users. So it wouldn't be wouldn't be necessarily very interesting for uh, for the general public.
0: All right, uh, it was really great getting your take, uh, Alex, uh, on things from your enclave in in, in Monaco. Uh, I think this was one of my favorite uh, interviews this year, uh, eye opening, and I think it's something that listeners uh, must uh, listen to, and so. People should bookmark at nakedhedgy.com. Find you on Twitter. And thank
1: you very much. Thank you to your listeners. And uh, onwards and upwards, the future is bright.